Hello, I'm Bianca. I'm Paloma. And I'm Tom. And you are listening to the Climate Press. podcast where we aim to bring together climate science with public understanding and action. Earlier this year, the NHS announced plans to become the first net-zero health service in the world. Today, the Climate Press is venturing on a mission to understand what this declaration means in practice for our health services. We start by speaking with Alexis Percival, an environmental and sustainability lead in the NHS, about some of the challenges and momentum to begin this journey towards becoming net-zero. We'll focus on a few key areas of achievable emission reductions in the healthcare system. We'll even look beyond the NHS and speak with Tim Keady, a specialist registrar in anesthesiology with the Health Service Executive in Ireland. But first, let's recap what we mean when we talk about net zero emissions. Net zero greenhouse gas emissions refers to the overall balance between greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere and greenhouse gases actively removed from the atmosphere. To achieve net zero, greenhouse gas emissions must be reduced to zero where feasible and any remaining greenhouse gas emissions must be balanced by active removal from the atmosphere through natural or technological processes that lead to negative emissions. Thanks, Paloma. Now here's Alexis. I'm the um, Environmental and Sustainability Manager for Yorkshire Ambulance Service. Um, I've been in post for 10 years now. So, but my, my post is um, I'm, I'm one person in an organisation of 6,300 mm. um, and I, I'm in charge of driving forward the sustainability agenda to, to get uh, people understanding the impacts of climate change but also to actually drive the sustainable change that needs to happen. So as an organisation we have a carbon footprint of around 16,000 tonnes um, of Scope one and scope two, which is the direct emissions, the things that we can look at. Okay. Um, if you could even go into further the scope. Yeah. So scope one, scope two um, is looking at uh, things we consume. Okay. Um, so we're looking at electricity, gas, water, and then we're also looking at things like fuel. So all of our fleet, of which we've got 1,200 vehicles, patient transport, uh, ambulances, we have rapid response vehicles. We also have um, the all support vehicles for people cleaning, cleaning ambulance stations, cleaning ambulances through to fleet workshops. Uh, so we, we've got a, a wide spectrum and, and most of our carbon footprint is from our diesel consumption mm-hmm. with scope one, scope two. Mm. So bear in mind, scope one, scope two is 16,000 tonnes a year. Okay. And we can start to control that because uh, we're moving over to renewables. Uh, we're getting more efficient boilers. We're looking at what we can do for uh, building a zero emission frontline ambulance with running on hydrogen and electric. So we, we'll end up having a moving towards a net zero target fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. But scope three is the kind of essential stuff that we need to use quite frequently. Right. And 
you can't necessarily control as much. So what we have is is um, the stuff we procure. So so procurement footprint would cover the products we use, face masks, plastic um, syringes, mm. um, all the, the equipment we use in the back of an ambulance. It would also cover things like stretchers, um, but it also would cover things like anaesthetic gases. Right. Now, yeah. I've started on preliminaries on anaesthetic gases uh, to have a look at how much we use. And Entenox, which is uh, nitrous, uh, nitrous oxide, is what we use for our anaesthetic gases. And there is no alternatives. Okay. In hospitals, they can move to desflorine and cefflorine and various other things. But our carbon emissions just from Entenox is 23,000 tonnes a year. So one and a half times the amount that we produce from all of our fleet, all of our states. And we use a couple of thousand litres of Entenox a year. You only use 5% of what you inhale and you exhale the rest of it. So it is atmospheric almost instantly. Just to recap, nitrous oxide is a greenhouse gas. Its warming potential is 300 times that of carbon dioxide, and it remains in the atmosphere for up to 100 years. Nitrous oxide also contributes to the destruction of the stratospheric ozone. We'll come back to this and anesthetic gases later in the show, when we're joined by Tim. Right now, let's hear about some of the bigger challenges of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in our health services. There's, there's a lot of challenges, that, as I said, about the, the carbon footprinting of, of the NHS. A lot of the procurement is, is probably about 70% of the, the challenge of the NHS. We can green our estates, we can green our fleets, but we consume. We consume on everything we do. And do you think um, that those, so do you think procurement, kind of that, what did you call it, scope three earlier, is going to be one of the biggest challenges in terms of reaching? Yes, yes. absolutely. And, and along in that same scope, does it also include waste as well? At what point does that come into our emissions and those calculations? That's a scope um, to emissions, so we can control okay. that. Okay. But there's also the caveats that all um, uh, all organisations need to have zero waste to landfill, which that was supposed to be in this year. Um, it, it does, however, shift it to um, waste recovery through mm. heat. And okay. um, so it's it's not about waste minimisation. Um, but there's a, a plastic uh, reduction pledge that's out as well at the moment, which got launched at the back end of uh, 2019. Uh, to encourage people to stop using single-use plastics in the NHS. Okay. Which, when we're using 8 billion gloves at the moment, which is, I'm sure, going to go up <laughs> oh, yeah. because of the coronavirus yeah. issues, it's the, the single-use plastic element is a real challenge uh, through medical stuff, but single-use things like cups and plastic uh, stirrers and non-necessary things like that, we, we can eliminate those now. There is no hygiene issues that are associated with those blood and uh, liquids and things you can't do anything but dispose of it but if you don't have anywhere to dispose of it too because we've run out of landfill space and quite a lot of our waste isn't incinerated but it has to go into deep landfill and there's a limited amount of deep landfill (coughs) that's around Mm -hmm. and you're never going to get away from a lot of the stuff that we we have to dispose of Mm -hmm. um yeah, uh, and 
some of it can be incinerated, but there's a, a national shortage of incinerators um, and there's a national shortage of organisations to pick up your waste. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we've got a daily battle trying to get companies to come and pick up waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but the healthcare sector is always going to generate it. So we just yeah. can't physically get yeah. away from that challenge. Yeah. Um, and then we just need to be a bit more inventive with it, I think. Yeah. Are there spaces or ideas for solutions already coming down the pipe or? No. No. <laughs> Sadly fair, not. No. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is, is we're, we're battling with um, the likes of food companies who, mm. oh. if, if you've got um, like a, a toothpaste company that has toothpaste that's out of date, they don't want yeah. that toothpaste to go back onto the market so they want it to go into deep landfill and they pay more yeah uh, than the health system can so oh. with this backlog of, of of waste until space becomes available okay um so we, we have a real challenge that is not going to go away You know, you've talked a bit about the, the extent of emissions and then kind of even your beginning process of trying to map out those emissions in different scopes and to see what's easier and what's more difficult to then control. Can you explain a bit about where the momentum from this work is coming from? So there's, there's been some really quite um, monumental changes in the system in the past year. So um, I got quite annoyed with the fact that the NHS wasn't changing fast enough. Uh, So I set up the NHS climate emergency around the same time that Extinction Rebellion uh, was kicked off. um, And one of the kind of spin-offs and various things from the Extinction Rebellion was the Doctors for Extinction Rebellion started. Um, And we started increasing pressure between us all um, on the various heads of, because we can only change a certain amount within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs a push from the top down. So I can say, well, we, we're going to have a completely green ambulance service and we're going to have all the vehicles electric or hydrogen um, and we're going to have uh, a net zero building and it's passive house standard. But in reality, we don't have the budget for it. Right. Um, and there's always some bureaucracy somewhere that will stop or hinder that that challenge from moving on as fast as it should so for the nhs climate emergency i i contacted all of the the heads of uh, different departments from um department of health department of um health equivalent in scotland wales and northern ireland and said look you need to move this forwards a lot faster also went for public health england nhs england nhs improvement and it was really frustrating. Some of them just kind of played the, oh, well, we're doing some stuff. We're, we're moving forwards. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's not what I'm asking for you to do. I'm, I'm asking for you to uh, abide by the national legislation of, of net zero. Yeah. Um, and Or even just abide by the 80%, as it was at the time, the net zero hadn't quite come in. And it's 
it then stepped up another level with Doctors for Extinction Rebellion kind of um, gluing themselves to various different departments. Um, and then there was a, a signature uh, petition that went round of over a thousand doctors saying, you need to move this, you need to do something. And it was pushed up the agenda quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the various different uh, youth strikes have played into various different roles. But I, I found out on a conference call last week that it was actually one of the Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, who's quite good friends with uh, the head of NHS England, who said, you need to do something about this. And at the end of February, um, the Greener NHS uh, campaign was launched, mm-hmm. requesting uh, that anybody who has any ideas, any innovation, any case studies, uh, any papers, any any information on how we can green the NHS and get to a net zero. Yeah. And that's the key point. That's the first time that the NHS has actually acknowledged that we need to achieve the net zero. Right. Ideally, we need to achieve it earlier and faster than 2050. Mm-hmm. But it's it's like moving a super tanker. It, there's so many different working parts uh, in the NHS that yeah. to do that is, is monumental. Okay. What else was helping you move this super tanker forward? At the same time, there was um, some guidance documents that got issued, uh, some HTM, which is health technical memorandums, uh, that got issued saying that this is what you need to do in order to achieve a net zero target. For So the, the planning uh, okay. and operational guidance uh, was issued, which uh, is embedded in the NHS standard contract. Mm. So if you have anything that you do with the NHS, you must comply with this. And, and um, can you give some examples of like what what it, what that guidance would be recommending, or like so that there is now an embedded um, element as part of those contracts that by April twenty twenty one, every NHS organisation needs to be in a renewable contract. They need to okay. procure uh, renewable electricity, and mm. ideally, which is in short supply, um, a green um, gas network. As a planning guidance, um, it has not a very long page, but it's got a page that basically says any new builds or any buildings that you are retrofitting must be to a net zero standard. No specification as to what that is, (laughs) but it means you need to be net zero. So there's some real challenges on on that front. But it's the first time that the NHS has kind of come up with this this guidance and this... um, this push to get the NHS going green. Okay. Um, and, and us within the sustainability, sustainability world have welcomed it with open arms and said, right, we need to run with this. So there's some real, some real challenges that we have and that there's a lot of stuff that we can resolve now. Okay, and what's changing now? I think that there's been a, an amazing thing that's, that's coming out of this, this pandemic at the moment is that we've... We've always been at, well, we need to get to work. Uh, we need to drive to work. We need to, we need to be in the office. We need to have face-to-face conversations. We need to drive across the county. We need to do X, Y, Z. And in reality, what has come out of this is you don't need to do that. You can work at home. You mm-hmm. can have a Skype conversation. You can, the amount of people in my office who've never even logged into Skype or, mm-hmm. or Zoom or Microsoft Teams, have had a baptism of fire, Mm-hmm. is amazing they say it takes 21 days to change a habit 
Mm. Uh, and we're going to be on this lockdown. Mm-hmm. Those systems will be embedded into people's minds. Mm-hmm. And so I think the whole of the world, the whole of the country and whole of the NHS will be dynamically changed by this. You've got GP surgeries, you've got hospitals that are having phone conversations where historically they would have dragged patients in. Mm-hmm. They're having Skype calls with each other. Yeah. They're having um, a massive change in their system change that they've resisted. We're, yeah. we're still the largest procurer of fax machines in the world in the NHS. <laughs> we procure over 5,000 fax machines. You're probably too young to remember what a fax machine is. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely at <laughs> the end, tail end. <laughs> Well, I mean, they they shouldn't really exist, but we still have fax machines that GPs will fax patients' notes into hospitals. Yeah. We have a a system that is called a computer that you can (laughs) not necessarily email, but you can pick up people's data according to their NHS number. So those systems are in place now. You don't physically need to touch something except for a key to send. Yeah, and do you feel like there's there's particularly um, a pushback in the healthcare system? Because there's oh, yeah. tons of things that have been moved electronically or could have been moved electronically like years ago and that everyone's still kind of holding on to or ingrained in this way. And it, yeah. I feel from the outside that like particularly in the healthcare system, it's like a reluctance to adapt. I think it's because everyone's so time constrained that learning new stuff is difficult. Mm -hmm. So they put it in a too difficult pile and don't want to do it. So it's a real system change Mm -hmm. very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And... That, that's what we've needed. Yeah. Um, No, you're right. Yeah. And that it could also, like you said, be an indication for future change as well or openness to future change. Well, the NHS is is making a massive change as fast as the NHS can. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, ch- the measures and the changes are starting to come. Um, the thing is, I think we do need the public to pressure uh, organisations. Uh, the Leeds Climate Health and Climate Commitment, um, which is all of the health organisations around Leeds, have decided that they are going to. It's not not quite a climate emergency, but we'll be targeting a a carbon reduction dramatically by 2030. We are building That's the great. first zero emission ambulance, uh, which will be hydrogen and electric. Yeah. Um, and that should be on the road by the end of this year, fingers crossed. Brilliant. Um, in Leeds, we're looking to plant uh, 57,000 trees, uh, for one for every single NHS worker in, in, uh, in Leeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't plant them on our land. So we need to plant them in our communities. We need to plant them everywhere everywhere else but also we need to start planting more than 57,000 trees the anaesthetists in in west yorkshire have a, a green anaesthesia group that's set up and they are great dramatically changing the landscape of of uh, anaesthetic gases because i'm not an anaesthetist mm. there are um gastroenterologists there are uh frontline a and e doctors they're all changing the way that they they function mm. i have paramedics who are changing the way that they they drive the way that they utilize things in the system so there, there there are some changes that are coming um and we will be making the impact and there's only six sustainability leads in in leads mm-hmm. for all the health organizations so you know that's a very small number of people to uh, to 
try and convert 57,000 people to more sustainable lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, there's only six ambulance uh, sustainability leads in the entire country for 22,000 of us. So we, we have a really big battle ahead of us, but we also need to bring everybody with us. So mm-hmm. anybody who wants to get involved in sustainability, contact your sustainability lead and get involved, get engaged, and, and let's start making the change. The one and a half million people that work for the NHS and the the one and a half million in the healthcare sector across the country, we all need to make the change mm-hmm. and we need to make it quickly. Mm-hmm. It's it's a real challenge. Yeah, it is. But it sounds like you said we're starting and yeah. that, that's really positive and, and hopefully people will continue to make the change that needs to happen. So absolutely. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. So remember when we said we would come back to nitrous oxide? Well, for the rest of the episode, we'll be taking a practical look at how to reduce emissions from anesthetic gases through the eyes of an anesthetist. So a healthcare system in a country typically uh, makes up 5% of the carbon footprint of a country. It's uh, about 5% in in the UK, in the Ireland. As I said, we don't know exactly what it is. Of that 5%, about 5%, again, is attributable to anaesthetic gases. Mm. Uh, that's how I got interested in it. I was shocked when I found this out that, that my daily practice could be contributing such a significant chunk about, to the carbon emissions of my country. Uh, I started researching and researching and figuring out how this was happening and why it wasn't, um, why it wasn't being looked at further. Yeah. So that is low-hanging fruit. Yeah, can you talk a bit more then about anaesthetic gases? We've heard already about nitrous oxide and I know that in the hospitals you use other gases actually and like what are the impact that those have on the environment um and and kind of what are the costs or challenges associated with um alternatives so um anesthetic gases are uh, divided up into the vapors that uh, only anesthetists use and uh, nitrous oxide um, N2O that's used by anesthetists but also used in obstetrics for um, uh, women who are delivering their babies and can um, puff away in nitrous and uh, it's also used in the emergency department. So an- anesthetic gases incorporates that whole mm-hmm. that whole group. About uh, 80%, 80 or 90% of the carbon emissions of anesthetic gases are due to nitrous Right. And the other 10 to 20% are due to the anesthetic vapors. The uh, vapors are called desflurane and sevaflurane, isoflurane. So just to be able to visualize this, this a little bit better, an average uh, citizen going about their daily life uh, will emit about uh, 25 kilograms of CO2 per day. Mm-hmm. And anesthetists in their daily work will emit about 500 kilograms of CO2. 
again, that could be hard to visualize. So what, what is 500 kilograms of CO2 with the gas? How can you even weigh it? Mm-hmm. 500 kilograms of CO2 is about almost a tree worth of uh, CO2. If you were to light a tree on fire, mm. that would be about 500 kilograms of CO2 being left off into the into the atmosphere. Okay. The, this is the amount of uh, CO2 that an anesthetist could be emitting on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. If you were to stop or minimize the use of anesthetic gases, you could reduce that by half or more. Wow. So if every anesthetist did that everywhere for uh, every day, you'd be saving substantial amounts of um, CO2 from being emitted. Okay, is that a possibility? Yeah. Because obviously the the contexts or the examples you've given are essential. Like it's it's essential for people to, to have pain management in, in these circumstances. Yeah. So how does that work? Like, yeah. So I'll start with um, the anesthetic vapours because uh, it's kind of an easy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three vapors, as I said. One of them, one of them is called desflurane. Desflurane is is about two thousand five hundred times as potent as uh, CO two as a as a globe, as a greenhouse gas. Mm. Or looked at it in another way, a bottle a bottle of desflurane is again worth a whole tree worth of CO two. Mm-hmm. And just to give you a kind of to kind of put that in another context as well. I was looking at the amount of, of anesthetic vapors that, that my hospital was using this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I noticed was that in 2016, we, used about, we were using about 6,000 bottles of sevaflurane. Okay. So sevaflurane is much less, much less bad for the environment. It's about uh, 100 times less bad for the environment than desflurane. Mm-hmm. So we, we used about 6,000 bottles of sevaflurane. And for some reason... Uh, that year, uh, someone started using a little bit more desflurane. So with an extra 100 bottles of desflurane that year, we ended up doubling our carbon footprint from anesthetic gases. Wow. Uh, and there's no real need. There's no need to use desflurane. Okay. It can be, you can use, you can do just as good an anesthetic with uh, sevaflurane as desflurane. Mm. Okay. So this is a behavioral change. It's an education thing. It's, you just, we just need people to know mm-hmm. that desflurane is a terrible gas for the environment and needs to be gotten rid of. Uh, well, gotten rid of or put away in case of some unknown situation where it might be necessary, but there's no real good reason for it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that is not going to make a huge impact overall in the big picture. Mm-hmm. It's an important small step. It's low-hanging fruit. But big picture-wise, it's not going to make a huge, huge impact. Mm-hmm. We still need to concentrate on where the 80-90% of emissions are coming from, and that's nitrous. Right. So it's right. a potent, it's a very potent greenhouse gas, and it's three, it's 300 times more potent than uh, CO2. Mm-hmm. So that means it is it's insulating the earth um, 300 times uh, more strongly than CO2. But it also uh, breaks down the ozone layer. It gets up to that um, area. It gets up to that level in the atmosphere and breaks down the ozone layer, allowing more harmful uh, light and heat in. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is that it stays in the atmosphere for 100 years. So every time we use um, nitrous today, it's going to be around in the atmosphere, heating the planet for another 100 years. So uh, nitrous is used in three situations. It's uh, used in neurosy departments and in anesthetics and in obstetrics. So um, in, in anesthetics, it's, uh, it's, it can be a helpful um, gas to add into an anesthetic 
um, in general because it can reduce pain mm-hmm. during a surgery. But there are uh, there are alternatives that you can give um, medications uh, intravenously that that will reduce pain as well. Mm-hmm. It also has some dangers associated with it. Um, you can't use it in certain types of surgeries due to some of the physical effects, like the way the gas expands in um, in uh, air filled cavities. So it's not it's not a fantastic anesthetic gas in the first place. Okay. So there is no again, it's another gas that there's no real need to use in anesthetics. The one exception you could make is for it's used in pediatric cases. Okay. So in in pediatric cases, it can be helpful to speed up how fast you can get a child to sleep. And if you use it for only that, it wouldn't be. It would be a small amount of nitrous use. Um, it would be a small, a small area of use, and it's something that should be reduced as much as possible. But it's, if we manage to get rid of nitrous out of everything except for that, we'd be doing uh, extremely well. We'd have a massive reduction in the amount of nitrous used overall. There's no need to be continuously giving nitrous for for a whole case. Mm-hmm. However, that is an opinion. And other anaesthetists will argue that they want to use nitrous all the time because they because they like it. Why? Like, is it just something? Why do they like simple it? preference or? It's a preference. I haven't. I haven't used it. I don't know how long, when was the last time I used it. I used it for briefly for a pediatric case recently, but outside of that, I haven't used it. Okay. I haven't used it in this for a whole case in years. There's no need. Wow. There's no need. Okay. There are always alternatives to nitrous, which is so that it's such a terrible um, greenhouse gas that you should always be thinking about what alternatives are available, and there are alternatives. People people might ask if um, if changing to kind of more sustainable anaesthetic uh, techniques uh, is safe. Um, Yeah, I was curious about it from a practitioner perspective. Like, is there a concern that it might reduce any of the quality of care or compromise the service? Yeah, there's um, uh, there's kind of a good reasonable anecdote about this. Just um, one of the ways of um, uh, of reducing the amount of anaesthetic gas that you use. Uh, in, in an anesthetic is by switching to total intravenous anesthetic mm-hmm. and that's that means no gas at all and all of your anesthetic is delivered by um, IV medications right. and that it requires a little bit of training a little bit of education and so so not everybody might be fully confident in, in using total intravenous um, anesthesia and mm. in, in Ireland but things have gone so far the other direction in uh, parts of the UK that anaesthetists aren't familiar with using gas. They're only familiar with using intravenous anesthesia. And that's that's where we want to be headed. We want gas to be the old style, old fashioned way of doing an anesthetic. And we want people to be moving uh, towards the towards newer anesthetics. Mm-hmm. So we do need to do that in a safe way. And it, and it does require a little bit of education. And in the College of Anesthesia in Ireland, we recently had our first um, environmental committee meeting. Oh yeah! So it's a, it's it's a huge development. It only happened like last last week, um, and I think a one significant feature of that committee is that all decisions made by the environmental committee go through the quality and safety committee mm. to make sure to make doubly sure that all of the all of the decisions are going to be safe from a patient point of view. Mm-hmm. 
and Easterists are already super cautious, careful people. We all we do all our kind of just like pilots, we do all our kind of pre-flight checks, and we do uh, we're constantly monitoring during an operation and after after an operation, and we'll continue to to do the same as we try to introduce more sustainable anesthesia techniques. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that'll put people's worries to rest about whether more sustainable te- techniques are um, are going to be safe. Okay. Is there any kind of reluctance towards adapting reduction measures um, because it's potentially a change in practice or are people generally on board? Like what, is there an acceptance? Um, So things that are simple, like um, stopping using desfluorine and just using sevofluorine, that's not going to cause any major any safety any safety concerns with people so that's mm-hmm. just really an educational thing and a behavioral thing mm-hmm. we need to create uh, an environment where, where, where that happens with stopping nitrous use again nitrous is mainly for the most part a totally optional extra anesthetic and so removing that um, from common use again won't won't be there won't be a safety issue and i don't see anyone arguing that it's a safety issue outside of perhaps in pediatric anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but switching, but going a step further and switching totally from gaseous anesthesia to total intravenous anesthesia, there will be a small learning curve, but that curve has already been jumped in the, in the UK and they are already implementing uh, that kind of change. So it's very possible for us to do it too. Mm-hmm. Other techniques such as... Um, spinals and epidurals and other type of nerve blocks for for surgeries some of them are slightly more advanced techniques and people will use them as they feel comfortable and confident in using them but they are less important than just making sure that people stop using nitrous and desfluorine really mm-hmm. what needs to be done what need and what is happening in the uk is that people need to talk to each other mm-hmm. anesthetists need to talk to obstetricians and need to talk to emergency uh, emergency medicine physicians and everybody needs to realize that uh, nitrous is terrible terrible gas for the environment mm-hmm. and to work to, to work together on uh, alternatives okay but what what really what really will drive that is patience I want patients to ask for a climate friendly anesthetic oh. I want patients to ask for a climate friendly delivery of their baby I want patients to ask for Mm. Uh, climate-friendly pain management in the emergency in the emergency department. Yeah, um, it has to come from all quarters, exactly. or else nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. And so, part of that would be like patient awareness and education and things, because otherwise, people probably don't even realize it. Yeah, exactly. I want people. I want people to know. I want people to be angry, especially in Ireland, where nothing's been done. I want people to be outraged that uh, the HSE is ignoring their duty to uh, patient care mm. by emitting uh, carbon dioxide and not even measuring it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a relatively easier problem to solve in terms of anesthetic exactly. gas use, that it is almost ridiculous we're not doing something about it. It is, yeah. The, the, the re- one of the reasons it's been, uh, it's been left and then we, it's been left... And it's been, its use has continued. Is that when, when the Montreal Protocol Agreement and the yeah. Kyoto Protocol uh, Agreement came in, mm-hmm. they thought that nitrous was a medical necessity, okay. and they—they they didn't put any regulations on its use. They didn't. 
even though it affects the ozone layer, yeah. it never got added to the list of Medicaid of um, of things that should be regulated. Ah, that's we know we know it's not a medical necessity in the strong sense of the words. Mm-hmm. It can be it can it can be useful, but there are really good alternatives. There's no need to. There's no you are not we are not forced to use uh, nitrous. That's really interesting because mm. we've done actually an episode on the ozone layer and the Montreal Protocol um, and what we were able mm. to achieve as a result of it. But I mm. never thought of it from this perspective before uh, in terms yeah. of why why nitrous oxide wasn't on the list. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to be added to any of those, any of those lists and regulated heavily. Right. So it really is up to education and public awareness uh, mm. of uh, doctors uh, of everybody, uh, doctors, patients, everybody involved in, in healthcare, uh, awareness that nitrous is uh, toxic for the environment and you should limit it, limit its use or not use it at all. again uh, would be that medical nitrous contributes to, to just 0.2 percent of um of ireland's emissions so okay. just say that again about 10 percent of, Mar- of ireland's emissions would be from agricultural nitrous okay. and 0.2 percent of our emissions from medical uh nitrous okay so so why why be worried about it yeah be worried about it because it's, because it's unregulated first of all okay and it's under our control second of all we can just turn it off with the flick of a switch yeah so it's something that we can change yeah and yeah. again based on the percentages that you gave me in comparison to the agriculture sector it's minimal but as a whole looking at the healthcare service it's still quite substantial so very substantial so you're talking about four percent of the healthcare service Mm -hmm. yeah so it's all relative so it seems like and again I think a lot of it has to do with what we have in our control to do because part of what people find so challenging about climate action is that it seems so distant and out of our control and the way that you've described this, it just feels like something super tangible that can be started today, like not even tomorrow. It's like you yourself have said you've changed your practice, like you're trying to, you know, make patients aware and make colleagues and peers aware of it too. Like it feels, why why wait? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this, uh, like you can get, you can get, you can get such good buy-in when you tell people, when you explain to people, that, you, that they can make such a difference themselves in their daily practice. You can, mm-hmm. and once you have that buy-in, you need to use it, and you need to make people aware of all the other ways um, that they can contribute to decreasing uh, carbon emissions and trying to protect the planet. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, as, as I'm sure you're aware, it's it, 
and uh, changing our practice with respect to anesthetic gases is not going to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. We have to bring sustainability into everything that we do every day mm-hmm. um, in hospital, outside of hospital, wherever we are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, grabbing people's attention with um, our, and making um, showing them that, that they can make a difference themselves by changing their anesthetic gas uses is uh, both reduces the um, carbon emissions and it gets people excited about it. It's a real mm-hmm. um, deliverable, yeah. measurable delivery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's all, it's all achievable. Yeah, exactly. It sounds promising. That's good. Yeah. Um, and hopefully with your podcast and with people around the country asking for more yeah. climate-friendly healthcare, then that'll push it even further. Yeah, I really like what you said because I don't think we think of it as a patient like power necessarily, but that it can be seen as as the patient can actually ask for a certain type of care to be delivered and... That's yeah. I like that. That's very interesting. Yeah, oh, it's, it'll make a huge difference if you start if we start seeing patients coming into a preoperative assessment clinic or even are into theater mm-hmm. asking can can we have a more climate friendly, more stable anesthetic? You will see. You may see some jaws drop in <laughs> theater. You may see some jaws drop in clinic. But suddenly it'll be discussed at the next meeting, and then suddenly people will be asking, "What is there? What is a climate friendly anesthetic?" and Mm-hmm. The information, the answer is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the answers. We just need people to be open to uh, adapting their um, anesthetic techniques to to the new world, to a world that has, has more sustainable healthcare. Yeah. Like Alexis mm-hmm. was saying, like it's been a really slow kind of gradual process from someone inside it. Like, um, and you yourself like are obviously experiencing that. Do you feel like there's a momentum building um not quite yet uh there's um there's there's some there's some small amount of work going on like uh, there was a uh there's uh, there's a report released um from the hse about, about climate adaptation and how we adapt to climate change but there's been nothing strong about how we try and prevent climate change that they've been totally ignoring um, one massive part of the issue climate adaptation is important it is important to be able to look after elderly people in the heat and try and prevent try and look after um, infectious disease um, uh, that are spread by floods and things like that that is important but no one is working on trying to reduce or mitigate how the HSE is having a negative effect on the environment and, and, and making climate change worse mm-hmm yeah. So I think where things differ a little bit in the UK, uh, between the UK and Ireland, is on legislation to begin with. Okay. Um, so, so the UK has the Climate Change Act from 2008, mm-hmm. and every public and private body has been asked to, to measure their carbon emissions and, and to try and reduce them. And people have been doing it, and there's been some massive achievements, like I said, about the 20% reduction since um, 2007. Uh, we don't have anything strong like that in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the future, there is some hope from coming from Europe. Yeah, um, there's the European Green Deal coming in, um, and in a couple of years, we may have uh, binding targets to reduce our uh, climate, our carbon emissions, uh, similar ones to, to what, what are in the what you have in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, there isn't anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
another life at the end of the tunnel there is that there's um, politically the Green Party are in talks with the government at the moment yeah. and, um, <laughs> and yeah there is some potential for a nationwide agreement to reduce our uh, carbon emissions by 7% uh, per year and that would be in line with the European Green Deal uh, targets but we, we haven't we haven't even started really in reality we haven't even gotten off the ground this is all as per usual it's stuff that's down the line and maybe coming and it's not it's too late for it's too late for maybes and possibilities it's, we have to start doing things now yeah I think that is still even in the UK like I think yeah maybe a few steps ahead but it's still the kind of nitty-gritty act enacting of them is still really tricky <laughs> it is there's all kinds of frustrations on the ground for people that are actually in the services and trying to enact yeah. change so. yeah but it's the frustrating thing is that if we got off the ground we could have these dramatic changes these dramatic reductions in carbon emissions really quickly yeah and um, because the low-hanging fruit the easy stuff is there ready to be done um yeah. all we need to do is look over and copy you guys in the uk Mm-hmm. and uh, we will have uh, dramatic changes in, in short order there's, there's such and if you get that going you get momentum you can make you could potentially make um, massive changes um, that are long lasting sustained hopefully hopefully there'll be more public public awareness and awareness um, yeah. among doctors about this about this as an issue and about how we can uh, how we can change um, and improve and reduce our carbon emissions uh, dramatically mm-hmm. on a daily basis. It's all about it's all about learning. It's all about education and getting people involved. So I also like to mention the Irish Doctors Institute for the Environment. They're a, a great group of mainly um, medics in, in, in Ireland. Uh, we'd love everybody uh, to join mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that group and uh, start start learning and start sharing information. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Bianca. Yeah, no worries. Um, Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We hope you are every bit as inspired by this episode as we are. Listening to Alexis and Tim speak, it is evident that there are many challenges to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in health systems. But they both speak about an awareness and momentum that is building. We heard a few examples of achievable changes to reduce emissions that are already underway, and a call to join these efforts. Because a system's change at this scale cannot happen alone. upcoming episodes visit our website theclimatepress.com this podcast is available on anchor apple podcasts google podcasts spotify breaker overcast soundcloud pocketcasts and radio public thank you to all the artists who contributed music to this episode for more information please see the website see you soon and remember Make love, not CO2.